Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Nicola Upson. Nicola worked in the theatre and as a journalist before publishing her first crime novel, An Expert in Murder, in 2008. The book introduced readers to Josephine Tay, a real-life crime writer who flourished in the golden age of the 1930s, for whom Nicola has created fictional adventures. Her debut led to her being hailed by P.D. James as a new and assured talent. This year, she has followed that success with a second Josephine Tay mystery, Angel with Two Faces. This takes Josephine to the family home of her old friend Inspector Archie Penrose in Cornwall, and despite Josephine's hopes of a peaceful writing retreat, the idyll is soon shattered by murder and the emergence of dark secrets. I began by asking Nicola to tell me more about her fascination with the real Josephine Tay. Well, like a lot of people, although I've realised the more people I've talked to since the book started coming out, that I'm quite an elite developer in terms of discovering Josephine Tay. Most people do it in their teenage years, but I was well into my 20s. But I read one of her most famous books called The Franchise Affair, and I was so struck by how different it was from a lot of the golden age or so-called golden age literature that was coming out around the same time. This is in the late 40s because it was just such a modern voice. Uh, So I went on to read her other novels, her other crime novels that she wrote under the name Josephine Tay. And although there are only eight of them, sadly, because uh, she died at a young age, I found that not only are they all different from a lot of the Sayers and the Christie and the Allingham and the Marsh, the big four that are trucked out, they're also completely different from each other and each one is a joy in its own right. So that was how I came across her as a crime writer. And then I read the infuriatingly small piece of information that you get in those Penguin Green and White novels about her as a person and found out that during her lifetime, um, she died in 1952, but before that she was most famous as a playwright called Gordon Daviot. And she had created this whole other literary personality, which was very, very different from the crime novels, but no less successful and no less original. And it seemed that it was extraordinary that this woman who spent most of her life in Inverness came down to London whenever she felt like it really, but that somebody who was as private as she was and as little known as she was today should have been the toast of the West End and the woman who created the careers of John Gielgud and Laurence Olivier and people like that. So I was fascinated by her. And then what was it that made you think that you might want to take that fascination a stage further and actually incorporate her into fiction? Well, there was a stage before that, which was that I really wanted to do a biography because it seemed to me that she was still so underrated and that more people should know about her. So there was a competition at the time. I think it was run by Virago and the Society of Women Writers and Journalists. And the idea was that you would put forward a, a synopsis for a woman who you felt deserved more recognition. So I put her forward and she got shortlisted, which kind of encouraged me to go on with it. But She was a very private woman. She rolled up a lot of carpets to do with her personal life. And although her professional life was very well documented and lots of those people who had worked with her were still about and I could talk to them, um, it wasn't really going to be a straightforward biography. And by this time, I'd got my partner involved because she works for the BBC and she has a passion for social history and is the most wonderful researcher. And it was actually her who had the vision to see that although it probably wasn't going to become a biography, it could be something different and there were more ways than one to tell a life story. So it was one of those, for God's sake, make it up conversations Mm. that actually had a very serious point behind it. And as it's turned out, it's just the most amazing joy, really, to be able to tell that life through a series of books rather than just through one. 
and presumably the, the shortcomings for the, for the biographer, the, those areas which you cannot really sh shed a light on, are an attraction for a novelist because you're then able to populate those areas. They're perfect. I mean, she's very obliging in that. And there does come a point, I think, in research when you're talking about real people where the gaps become more fascinating than the facts because a lot of her life was very quietly led. As I said, she was in Inverness. She looked after her father. She kept house. She came down to London. But it wasn't really, you know, the, the fireworks stuff. There were lots of gaps. She was always packing and unpacking. She travelled a lot. And those gaps were perfect perfect to be filled in with things that make sense in the context of her life but are complete fiction and because obviously now we know her best today as a crime writer it seems sensible to around the biographical thread to have a self-contained crime mystery usually a murder mystery within each novel and did you set yourself any rules for how you would put a, a real historical character into a fictional landscape yeah, I mean, it's a bit easier with her because she is Josephine Tay in the novels. She's not Elizabeth McIntosh, although it does follow the path of Elizabeth McIntosh's life. But that, that was the wonderful part, really, because unlike the academic discipline of a biography, you can make a pact with her. You can always be on her side. You can always fight her corner. And you don't have to be quite as objective as you would be as a biographer. And so I suppose that the rules that were set down were to do her justice to bring her work perhaps a bit more into the fore than it, than it had been, but also not to do anything that I felt would have been completely against her character. So although there are gaps to fill in, there are things I've made up and there are decisions you have to take because the evidence isn't clear, the, the guiding rule really is not to do anything that you know in your heart that she wouldn't have done. Except, of course, get involved in a load of murder <laughs> mysteries. <laughs> but once you accept the big one, then other things are possible. Exactly. I think there are things that as readers we take as an act of faith. Otherwise, you'd have no such thing as crime fiction. So that's OK. When you tell people the kind of books you write, do they make the assumption that you're writing some kind of pastiche? You're trying to sort of recreate something that's that's been and gone from the golden age? Yes, they do. And it's nice for me to make a distinction really between trying to recreate a golden age novel, which these books don't do, and understanding the period in which golden age fiction was created, but from a modern perspective, so that when people tell me that perhaps some of the words that come out of the characters' mouths, some of the sentiments they express, some of the tolerance they express, um, would not really have been acceptable in a golden age tradition, then I, then I perhaps probably would cheer, because the worst thing that could happen for me would be for somebody to come up and slap me on the back and say, I think you captured the bigotry of the period really, really well. So people's attitudes to homosexuality, perhaps, to crime, to murder in general, to grief, they have a more modern perspective in these books than you normally got in the Golden Age fiction. Although having said that, the beauty of Josephine Tay's books is that they are very modern in their outlook and they do have a dark undercurrent under what looks like a quite conventional narrative. I mean, the way, the way it seemed to me was that you were writing about things which would really have gone on in those years, but wouldn't necessarily have been, or would not have been written about in the detective fiction of those years. Yes, I think that's ab absolutely true. And I think although the social conventions are very, very different these days, when you come down to it, the emotions that these people feel, the grief, the love lives, they're not so different. You know, there isn't a glass screen between us and the 1930s because the emotions are fundamentally the same. But it's lovely to be able to write books in which it is more acceptable to express 
what I know from having read letters and diaries and public uh, and papers that were never intended for publication. They really were the things that were thought and spoken privately between friends that perhaps trusted each other. But the constraints were certainly more present in those days. And you mentioned homosexuality and and clearly there were things which now are accepted, which in those days were illegal. And and therefore this the sort of shame and the scandal are therefore that much more intense. And as a novelist, that sort of heightens the, the tension greatly, doesn't it? It does. It's interesting because a lot of the books have a theatre link and theatre was one world which even in the 1930s, it was not necessarily acceptable, but certainly safer to be gay in than any other world there. But it's interesting, even the difference between the 1920s and the 1930s, we, we think about the gap being between that age and this one. but. The 1920s were a fabulous time for women, really, in lots of ways. After the war, although obviously we suffered a huge loss of that generation of men, for some women it was absolutely devastating, for others it was completely liberating. And certainly lesbianism in the 1920s was much more acceptable than it was in the 1930s after The Well of Loneliness was published and the court case happened in 1929. There was a huge shutdown and that is something that affected Tay and a lot of her circles. You mentioned you mentioned the war, and we think of it as the interwar period, but of course, to them, it was the post-war period mm. because they didn't know what was ahead. And the shadow of the First World War does seem to, to, to be a long one. It's a hugely long one, and that was one of the biggest shocks to me, really, when I was doing an expert in murder and reading a lot of the accounts of the First World War. It was really quite a shock to me to realise that in the early 1930s, the horror of the First World War was still so fresh in people's memories. I mean, the people who had returned sick, the next generation that it began to affect, the families of the people who had been lost in that war. But also, I think, as the 30s progressed, it became all the more sharply focused because it became evident that there was another war looming on the horizon. And I, can, I can't even really begin to imagine what it must have been like for the people who had lived through that war to know that none of those lessons had been learned and that the chances were that something was going to happen again and it was going to happen a lot more a lot closer to home than it had done in the first world war and both josephine and her friend archie bear the mark of a tragedy from the first world war that's that's clearly something which has deeply affected both of them it has i mean josephine has her loss in the First World War, her lover. Archie himself has huge scars from the First World War. But the biggest tragedy for them, really, I think, as they grow older together and as their friendship develops, is that they can never really understand what each other went through in that war. He doesn't really understand her loss and she can't possibly begin to imagine what he went through. And there is this big divide between the people who fought the war and saw the horrors firsthand and the people who were at home waiting for them. And that lack of understanding is something that was a knock-on effect for the next generation. We've mentioned Archie Penrose. Tell me how he took shape because you you obviously took the decision not to go it solo with with Josephine and she he's she's got a companion let's say in in her investigations she has i made the decision very early on that the thing that i really didn't want to happen was to turn her into a miss marple type amateur sleuth because it goes back to what we were saying about not doing something that would be completely against her character and that would have been because she was quite reserved and she didn't really like to engage with people if she is, unless she had to, which doesn't make for a great detective, really. So I wanted there to be a proper policeman in the book. Archie is a nod to her own fictional hero, Josephine Tay's hero, Inspector Alan Grant, who 
in his own right, was quite an extraordinary figure in crime fiction. He was the first, I think, really credible professional policeman in detective fiction. He wasn't a, a brilliant amateur. He wasn't a bungling policeman. He was just a hardworking individual policeman. So Archie is a nod to Alan Grant, but he's also a composite of a lot of the real policemen who were at Scotland Yard at that time. And it's, it's fascinating from a research point of view because obligingly they all had the sort of ego that meant they would write an autobiography the minute they stepped down from the yard. So there are, you know, there's Cornish of the yard, French of the yard, and all these policemen. So he is a combination of, of real police research and also the best of the fictional detectives. So he's a kind of tip of the, the hat to, to Tay's detective and also in the in the novels you've got Tay writing her, her real detective story so there's all exactly. sort of circular games and mirrors going on. Exactly, it can go full circle and the interesting thing about Alan Grant really is that he paved the way for a lot of the fictional detectives that we love today, people like Wexford and Adam Dalgleish I mean he, he was the forerunner of that but it, it is nice to have that kind of infinity circle going on where she bases her policeman on Archie in the books as well. Now, tell me about Cornwall. The new novel is set in Cornwall. It's a very powerful presence in the book. So how did that sort of impress itself on you as a, as a good place to, to situate the book? Well, Cornwall was very important in the development of the series long before really the Cornish book was written because the idea for the series was that I that I spoke about earlier was had in a National Trust cottage on the Penrose estate which forms the basis of the setting in Angel with Two Faces. We went back there several times and fell in love with this particular part of Cornwall. It's called the Penrose estate, it's now owned and managed by the National Trust but it is the largest freshwater lake in Cornwall. It's one of the many lakes that Arthur was supposed to have thrown Excalibur into and there is a, a fabulous evocative place called Low Bar where that lake is separated from the sea by a very narrow stretch of sand and it is the most magical place on earth and because um, the estate in the 1930s was a very very closed community it seemed just too good to be true to avoid setting a book there because you've, you've got the ready-made community for the detective story you've got the magic of the setting and yet you've got this darkness which I think Cornwall has I think it's for you know somebody who's quite soft and comes from East Anglia like I do to go to to somewhere as powerful and alien in in many ways as Cornwall is quite an interesting thing because it's a place of contrast it's the beauty it's the darkness it's the sea and it's the human element and it was all there really plus the fact that the tallest stories I know come out of Cornwall some of our very good friends in Cornwall um, contributed to the book for, for years really by telling us stories as we as we went down there and it was just it was just magical well that was something I wanted to ask you about because one of the phrases which stuck in my mind from the um, from the new book was darkness masked by beauty and I wondered if you if if that sort of sprang from within your imagination or if you genuinely experienced that there was something in Cornwall that you, you, you felt that presence of darkness or if that was something which you kind of brought into the equation that was already present in your mind no it, it's definitely there I mean even today we when we go down we spend quite a lot of our time in Cornwall now um, we go down every month for a week or two and almost always when we go down there I'm, and I'm not kidding you there has been some kind of odd or mysterious death there's usually a funeral going on when we arrive which is why I wanted to open the book with a funeral and the suicide rate seems to be quite prevalent now I don't know why that should be but having spoken to a lot of the older generation in the village and for the research for the book we went to talk to the undertakers in the village whose family have been in undertaking for years but that's not something that's new and I think 
What struck me when the early stages of the book were underway was that the attitude to death in Cornwall is very, very different from a lot of the modern attitude to death that we meet in our everyday lives now. There's still a great respect for it down there. There's still a great sense of practicality and black humour, but speaking to Victor, the undertaker on whom Jago Snipe in the book is based, what came out was this huge compassion that they have. And I, I did a lot of research on death and on undertaking and on the physicality of death for the book. And in contrast to the stories that he would tell me about his father and how things were when he was growing up, I would then get these loads of pamphlets on, on modern day death, which just seemed to have absolutely no bearing on what people want to do with loss anymore. I mean, the undertakers at the end of my road up here call themselves memorial consultants, which seemed a million miles away. So the attitude to death down there is very much that of what I think it was mostly in the 1930s. And, and, and what's your explanation for that? Is it, is it landscape? Is it the, the fact that the sea has claimed people in the past? Is it sort of separateness? What, what do you think accounts for that, that darkness you perceive? Well, I think it is partly to do with the power of the sea and the power of the landscape. I and mean, there is no arguing with it. You sit on the beach as the tide's coming in and you know that you have respect for that. There is nothing human that can cope with that whatsoever. So it is partly that. It's also partly that there's undeniably an economic hardship in Cornwall and, ha and has been, uh, particularly with the destruction of some of the industries down there. That leads to a darkness today. But also, it is very much a part of, and this I don't think is peculiar to Cornwall, but it is a part of village life. The families have been there for generations and there are communities within communities. And each of those different families usually has a secret. And that really was the fundamental starting point of the book. Yes, and you mentioned closed communities before and that the novel is set on an estate and Archie, the detective, although um, Archie was born and raised there, he's, he's really regarded as an outsider coming back in, isn't he? And so th those secrets are very much locked up behind closed doors within families. They are, and he's separated doubly really because his family were um, in charge of the country estate. So, I mean, he was separated from the village before he even left the community. But of course, now he's gone away. He went to university, he's, he's gone to war, and he's built himself another life completely, as have Ronnie and Lettuce Motley. So when they come back, they come back very much as visitors. Doubly so for Archie, of course, because the minute there's trouble on the estate, he becomes a professional, he becomes a policeman and very much the outsider looking in, which makes people even more suspicious of him than they would have been already. You mentioned earlier you didn't want to reproduce the prejudices of the, the golden age or of that time. And it seemed to me your sort of sensitivity to, to, to class was, was part of not wishing to simply make working class people caricatures and stereotypes. I mean, is that something you're, you're conscious of when you're writing, sort of doing justice to to characters at all levels in, in society? Yes, I hope so. Particularly, actually, in, in the third book that, that I've just finished as well, class is very important in that. But I think what I do try to do, and you have to do this when, when you're doing period fiction, I think, is to stop being conscious of, of the gap between you and the period you're writing about. And in the same way, I don't think it would work if I sat down and consciously said, I want to investigate class and I want to make these characters as real as real can be. You have to feel you have to feel them properly before you, you start writing them. You have to do the research, know who they are, and then put that down as an issue, really. You can't keep the, writing the book with the issue in your head. But I'm pleased that that does come out. 
And perhaps the same thing goes with the desire because your characters are animated by very powerful desires. And perhaps there comes a, a, a stage with those two where you're not sort of censoring yourself and saying, you know, this is not 1930s or this is 1930s desires. They are recognizable human characters animated by those passions. Yes, they are. I think obviously because of the concentration into a detective story, those desires and the things that they are driven to do through those desires become more magnified and become more concentrated because you do have to create, hopefully, a tense story which will keep get people guessing right until the end. But that's absolutely right. It's interesting that people say, you know, you write about what you know, and that certainly is true. But the interesting point for me, I think, is the 10% that you don't know about. And hopefully for most of us writing crime novels, that is the darkest desires that will lead people to take the ultimate extreme. And it is very interesting, I think, to try to create murders which are, and crime writers, if we're all honest, we all want to create the nastiest murders we possibly can. But it's interesting to create murders that you think come from very ordinary domestic reasons, come from something as simple as falling in love with the wrong person, which none of us are immune to, if we're absolutely honest about, and which certainly are not confined to the 1930s or the 1940s or 2009. They are quite straightforward emotions, but taken to the extreme. Have you discovered things about yourself as a result of writing crime novels? What a good question. I think perhaps the most shocking thing is that probably what I've just said, that most of us, I think, put under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, are actually capable of an act of violence. I think most of us recognise that we would do it in a moment of high passion. But I do think that it is easier than I ever imagined it would be to sit down and put yourself in these characters' positions and see, envisage the, the, the steps that lead to the ultimate act being taken. So I'm not saying, of course, that I'm not going to go out and kill somebody or that I feel that murderous instinct because I don't, but I do see how easily it can happen. You mentioned that the third book is finished. Can you tell us a little bit about where that will t take Josephine and Archie? I can. It's set back in London in November of 1935. Josephine is staying at the Cowdery Club, which is where she always stayed when she was in London. It's a club for nurses and professional women, of which she was a member. And the um, plot is to do with a book that she is currently writing, which, is, which goes back to a real-life murder case of 1902, and then is brought horrifyingly up to date in the present with a murder that takes place in the Motley's workshop. It has a theatre theme, uh, Noel and Gertie are there to do a charity gala and it also, although I didn't realise when I was going, when I was setting out to do the story, but you, you, when you get halfway through there are certain characters and it's not just Josephine Tay who's a real person in this, there are other real people in them as well. Uh, one of the people who came out of this particular story is a lady called Mary Size who was the Deputy Governor of Holloway Prison at the time and did the most amazing things for prison reform. So there is a, there is a prison storyline in there too. And it's a book which confronts Josephine with some emotional and very private questions of her own. Your first novel was made into a radio play. What was that experience like? 
It was fabulous, actually. They let us go and watch it being recorded uh, up in Scotland. It was a BBC Scotland production. And it was wonderful to see that whole process of, of the book, which, you know, because it was the first novel, I was really just getting used to seeing it as a book. So then to take it onto another medium together was fabulous. And it was really brilliant to be up there and see that they still do the sound effects in the same way as they must have done in the 1930s. So that was great. I mean, there were certain things I liked about it and certain things I didn't, but it took the book to a completely different audience and gave it a profile, which was wonderful. And it brought it to life for me in a completely different way. It was, I was able to be more detached about it than I would be just sitting down and reading a book. Are there recordings of Josephine's speaking voice? Have you ever heard her? No, I, I, I never have. And it's funny because I was talking about this the other day. I was saying to somebody that I would swap all the pictures I have no. for just 30 seconds of her recorded voice because I gather from people who wrote about her that she had a very beautiful voice. Obviously, the Inverness accent is a lovely accent, but it would be lovely to hear it. But sadly, I haven't. I think, I think that's true that... that if you have a voice recording, like, you know, even if it's Tennyson, you know, from the bottom yes, of a bucket exactly. or, or T.S. Eliot intoning, it, it brings people to life in a way that no number of photographs can do. It does. And even if they're putting on a radio voice, you can usually get to the bottom of that. It's very evocative. And, I, and, I, and you know, one may come to light and I hope it does. Let me ask you finally, do you feel that you belong in a sense in the 1930s or can you imagine writing a, a contemporary detective novel at some time in the future? Well, I certainly think there's a lot of mileage of the 1930s. I'd, I mean, I, I love the characters that are being created at the moment, and I think they have a lot, they have a lot of mileage in them yet. I mean, I, I don't, the things we've talked about, I don't really see them as having particular limitations because they're set in the 1930s. I can probably see myself writing a book in which there isn't a murder. I think one of the things that uh, Josephine Tay stands out for is create crime novels, which, which stand up in their own right with having them, without having the mechanic of a murder. So I'd very much like to write perhaps a contemporary book, but one that didn't have a murder in it.